Well, good morning. So good to see you all today. I pray you're doing well. Welcome to everyone in the venue and those watching online at carneyefree.com. My name is Adrian and one of the pastors here at this wonderful church. We're going to jump right in though this morning. If you would turn with me in your Bibles, if you have your Bible today, to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you're most welcome to pick one up as our gift to you at the exits today or the information table or if you follow along on your church app, that's fine as well. But let's open now to Matthew chapter 5. In the series, what we're doing, Citizens of Another Kingdom, is we are reminding ourselves that our citizenship is indeed in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior who is from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he invites us to be citizens of this wonderful nation, for sure, to be good citizens here, but even more to remember that we are part of a multinational, multi-century, multi-millennium kingdom, another nation, the kingdom of God. And that ultimately is where our greatest citizenship, our greatest loyalty lies. And we are seeking through this series to remind ourselves yet again what it would look like to be a part of bringing more of God's good dominion here to this earth, more of heaven down to earth. Yes, we wait to go to heaven, but also Jesus invites us to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth as we rely on him more and more. Remember, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is this. It's the beautiful reign of God, the beautiful rule of God, the dominion of God. It's wherever he has power in this world, where he's exercising his will being done, where it looks like Jesus in the lives of ordinary men, women, and children, and then also in systems that conform to God's will. So whenever you look around, you say, wow, that is what Jesus would want for this world, in this person's life, in this marriage, in this family, in this neighborhood, in this school. You can be confident that's the kingdom of God. Okay? So we're trying to increasingly live into that. Jordan, Pastor Jordan Heinrichsen, did a great job last Sunday reminding us of this vital theological concept. And I understand it may have been new for many in attendance, but it's a vital theological concept as he talked about the fact that the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here. Okay, he said it's like March 20th. Officially, we're in spring, but it still feels like winter. It's kind of like that. So we have these whispers of the kingdom of God that are already at hand when you see the way of Jesus His beauty manifest in this world right now. People coming to Christ and again, families being conformed to the likeness of Christ, etc. That's the kingdom of God now. And yet, we simultaneously wait for the kingdom of God which is yet to come in which Christ will one day come back and he will make all things new and he will dispose of all evil and only goodness will remain and there will be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore. Amen? Amen. Now we still, we do get a taste of that now. We get a taste of that now. And so we're trying to live more and more into that as we uh, go through this series in uh, the kingdom of God. So Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus begins his public ministry basically saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is now here. The kingdom of God is at hand, It says literally in the Greek language. As I come, the kingdom of God, I bring the kingdom of God that you Jews have been waiting for. The kingdom of God is near. 
It's at hand. It has come in Jesus Christ. And shortly after he says that, he does some, some healings and some teachings, but his very first recorded sermon is what is now called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're going to turn there now, and we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for much of the next several weeks, and then we'll look at the kingdom of God in a number of other passages in the book of Matthew as well. But we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount for the next several weeks. This is Jesus' longest recorded sermon. And I'm telling you, if you want to get a feel for what the kingdom of God is like and how it's different than the kingdoms of this world, if you're still having a difficult time kind of wrapping your mind around this idea of being citizens of another kingdom and what that looks like, what I'd strongly, strongly encourage you to do is to soak yourself in Matthew 5 through 7. Okay, read and reread and reread and pray and journal on what you see in Matthew 5 through 7. Okay, because the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description of the kingdom of God, again, in addition to, to other places as well. But as you do, I think you'll notice that the kingdom of God is a kingdom like no other because it welcomes those who are welcomed by no other. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God is a kingdom like no other because it welcomes those who are welcomed by no other. Keep that in mind as we enter now into Matthew 5 for this morning, verses 1 through 10. Now when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And so here's the vision. Uh, he's on a hillside. I've been to this hillside and it's got kind of like an amphitheater look to it on the Sea of Galilee. And so he goes to the top of that and crowds are following him because they've seen his miracles, heard whispers of his teaching. His disciples are near. He sees these great crowds following him and he says, okay, here's a good place for me to teach. And the people are sitting down and looking up at him as he begins teaching them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father in heaven, we ask that you would teach us here this morning. What we need is not another talk from me. What we need is teaching from your scripture. We'd ask that you guide us here today on what it looks like to live in a very different kingdom with very different values than the kingdoms of this world. Please begin to teach us now. Open our hearts to beautiful things from your wonderful word. We confess our great need for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, these eight statements are called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are these stunning reversals, are they not? As you read those, you see a reversal. 
you see eight statements that are called blessed, and we would say, no, that's not exactly blessed. That doesn't seem like a blessed state at all. These are people who are beat down and are broken down, brokenhearted by life. They're needy. And the reason they're blessed is because when you're in one of these needy states, which we'll spend some time on this Sunday and next Sunday, the kingdom of God is very near to you in that needy state. Jesus is particularly close to those who are in these needy states. So, for example, you read these, poverty, for example, would be a terribly unfavorable state, right? Would you agree? Anyone who's been poor would agree. Anyone who's been poor would agree that it's an awful experience. And yet, Jesus says that if you are poor, I think what he means here is both physically or spiritually, if you're physically needy, you're emotionally or spiritually needy, the kingdom of God is particularly near to you there. You may be totally empty right now. Maybe you have this experience of spiritual poverty right now that the gas tank of your life is empty and yet you know you still have to keep driving. Anyone else? Okay, that could be spiritual poverty and when you're there, you recognize more your need for God. The kingdom of heaven is near to you. Blessed are the poor in spirit because God is there. Blessed are those who mourn even though none of us would choose to mourn, right? Okay, so these are not happy states that we say, oh, I have to choose to mourn more. That's a misreading of the Beatitudes. What these are are unfavorable positions in life that nobody would choose. But they're blessed because Jesus is saying when you're in these positions, the kingdom of heaven is near. Blessed are those who, are mor who mourn. Again, no one would choose, that, choose those. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice or righteousness. Same word in the Greek language. Though no one wants to be in that place of hungering, longing, thirsting for things just to be right when they're not right at all. Blessed are the meek. Meekness is never extolled in a winner-take-all society, is it? Peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers. You say, well, that's kind of a good thing. That'd be a great thing to be a peacemaker, Adrian. That's probably, yeah, that, that'd probably be a really good state. Okay, when you read blessed are the peacemakers, think of a police officer. <laughs> think of a police officer that has to enter into a domestic violence dispute and somehow end the war that's happening there. Okay, not easy, right? Not an enjoyable state to be in. Blessed are the pure in heart. You might ask, like, is purity exalted in our culture today? Everybody roundly says no. Blessed are the persecuted. Nobody wants to be persecuted for their most dearly held beliefs. Again, what Jesus is saying throughout these Beatitudes is, blessed are the zeros, the bankrupt, the deprived and deficient, those who know that they are hungry beggars before a God who has bread to put into our hands. No matter who you are, no matter how ugly your circumstances are right now, Jesus begins his definitive sermon by announcing, blessed are the nobodies because you're somebody in the kingdom of God. This is the word of Christ. And it's good for those who maybe are hurting today or has someone in your family or a dear friend who is hurting today. Now the word beatitude... The word blessed here, in the original language, is makarios. 
And makarios has a couple different meanings. It means to be blessed. It also means happy. <laughs> so again, nobody's going to say happy are the morning. It's an oxymoron. But it's happy because, again, the kingdom of God is near. Blessed are those who are persecuted because the kingdom of God is near. Now, I, I read these, and I have to be honest. I wonder, do these blessings from God come with a receipt? Like, is this, does this come with a gift receipt of certain kind that I can take these blessings back to him and get some others? I'm not sure if I want these blessings. How about you? These are not the blessings, though, that any of us really want, but they are a blessing in this way. These realities crush our self-sufficient pride. And when our self-sufficient pride is crushed, then we more naturally reach out to God, don't we? Don't we? And that is why these are blessed realities. I put it this way on your outline. When you're stuck in the mud, the kingdom of God is actually near. You may think you're just in the mud, and life really stinks right now, but the kingdom of God is actually near. You can call on him, and he's very close. We're all stuck in the mud at times, and it strikes me that when we are stuck in the mud, what do the worldly kingdoms all around us do? What do the nations or the ways of this world do to people when they're stuck in the mud? I think they tend to roll their eyes at those people. Sometimes they just roll over those people. But Jesus keeps rolling with you when you're stuck in the mud. The kingdom of this world will roll over you when you're stuck in the mud. Jesus keeps rolling with you when you're stuck in the mud. If you knew nothing of the teachings of Jesus and somebody told you to read the Sermon on the Mount beginning with these Beatitudes, my guess is you would likely think that Jesus almost has like this preference for people at the bottom. And we would likely think that his view of the kingdom that he was bringing to earth is like totally upside down. Because it's so different than anything that we see exalted in this world today. But as we talked about in week one of this series, the simple fact is we've actually been flying upside down. And what Jesus is doing is he's given us a different view of the right side up kingdom. He said... The kingdoms of this world and all the things that we kind of naturally do where we cleave to wealth and power and sex and esteem and getting more for me, myself, and I, all of that in the kingdoms of this world, he would say that's actually flying upside down. And to be flying right side up, you want to do that, you, you, you again, you, you soak yourself in this Sermon on the Mount. He's given us a new way to live and to think and to speak, which is right side up. These eight Beatitudes, they really go together, and we're not going to cover them in eight weeks. We're just going to cover them in two weeks. Today, for the remainder of our time, after that long introduction, well, what I'd like to do is just focus our energy for the remainder of our time on verse 7. And verse 7 is, I think, a beautiful example of what is really challenging and difficult about the Beatitudes, but how they can be truly um, part of the blessed life. So let's sit there for a moment. Verse 7, let's read this out loud from the screen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, would you join us in the venue as well? All together, ready? 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Yeah, blessed are the merciful, because they will be shown mercy. So if you're in need of mercy right now, if you're stuck in the mud today, the kingdom of God is very, very near to you. He wants to show mercy to you. Have you had the experience of going through a very, very painful season in life where everything was messed up, and yet that became the experience where you grew closest to God? Anyone else? I'm the only one? Okay, anyone else? It was frequently for us in the seasons of greatest pain that we grow closest to God, that we experience his mercy in a profound and different way. When you meet people in the mud, the kingdom of God is near. Okay, the kingdom of God is near to them when you meet them in the mud. And so also for us, we get to be purveyors. We get to convey the kingdom of God to others when we meet them right where they are in the mud. Maybe you know someone who's really merciful. Can you think of someone right now who's really, really merciful? Okay, is that easy? No, that's not easy, is it? You know that person who's really merciful, they take on a lot of other people's pain. They have an ability to dwell with people in the mud. Because mercy loves misery. Mercy is present with those who are miserable. Mercy is loving those who are more difficult to love. Mercy is showing compassion to those who are hurting. And the thing about mercy, the thing about showing compassion to those who are hurting is inevitably though there will be a transfer. That you give them your mercy and they get some benefit from you and you get some of their hurt in return. That's just kind of the way it goes. So when Jesus says blessed are the merciful, he's not saying this is easy, but it's a blessed state because people need it so deeply. Here's my definition for mercy. Mercy is showing more kindness and love to a person than what seems reasonable. Okay, so you, you, you find someone and you see they are in the mud. Maybe it's because of their own life decisions. Maybe it's because of things that other people did to them. Uh, we don't have to know why it is that they're in a really difficult situation, but you choose to show more kindness and love and compassion to, to them than what seems reasonable, maybe even more than they deserve. Mercy admits that this person doesn't deserve a whole lot, but I'm going to give them a whole lot of love anyway. And again, this doesn't really make much sense to the kingdoms of this world today. I would say if this was rewritten for 2022, both in the United States and in many other nations around the world, it would not be blessed or the merciful, it would be blessed or the ruthless. Be blessed or the ruthless because they will gain more. That's the standard operating procedure. It would be woe to the merciful because they'll be passed over. They'll be rolled over by the powers of this world. Likewise, back in the first century when Jesus said this, in the Roman Empire of the day, there was no conception of mercy as a positive character trait. None at all. In the Roman and the Greek worlds of the day, like uh, people who had lots of issues, people who maybe were crippled or were blind, were regularly left on the roadside to die. 
In the Roman world of the day, if someone didn't want their baby, it was legal for them just to leave them out in the elements to be exposed. In the Roman world of the day, women were always second-class citizens. And Roman soldiers were allowed to rape women. Like, that was the power structure of the day. There was no conception whatsoever in Jesus' first century world that he entered into for mercy. And then came Jesus. He, of course, is the beautiful, right-side-up example for us of the kingdom. He was the one who would hang out with these people that were disposed of by the world around them. He would go spend time with the lame, those who were blind, crippled, with prostitutes, with tax collectors, with people who were despised by the world around them. He was the one who would bring children who were not even to be really cared for in the Roman world and put them on his lap and bless them one by one. He offered forgiveness even to those who hated him. Like, think about mercy. The Jews and the Romans strung Jesus up on a tree. And he speaks forgiveness over them as they do so. He is our example of mercy, which is more love and kindness than anyone would have thought reasonable. And this, my friends, is basic Christianity. Jesus treats us with more love and kindness than we could possibly deserve, and then he meets us in the mud, and he invites us to, to do the same. And so the question for us is we realize, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown more mercy, and we are to be conveyors of his mercy to this hurting world, is how do we do that for people who are down in the valleys of life? I want to suggest to you, though, this morning, just two words, though, that really help us to show mercy to people whose problems we cannot fix. And the two words are these. They're presence and hope. We'll start with presence. I think a great example of presence, well, when someone was stuck in the mud, was Job's friends. Job's friends, the first time that they came to him, you might remember Job's story, he experiences incredible suffering unlike any that perhaps any of us have ever experienced. All of his sons and daughters die in this terrible storm. All of his livestock is killed. He's a very wealthy man. He loses all of his money. Then he's inflicted with sores that go from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. His wife sees all of his problems and her response to Job was, curse God and die. That's Job. Wife was not all that supportive in this moment of need. But his friends, they provide an alternative and they draw near to sit with him in his pain. Look at Job 2, 11 through 13. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes... And they met together by agreement. They say together, let's go comfort our friend Job. Let's agree together to be with him. Let's go sympathize with him and comfort him. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him 
because they saw how great his suffering was. Hmm. It says elsewhere they wept with him. They knew they could not fix what he was going through, but they had a sense that the presence of a friend mattered. And they were right. It was that presence of these three friends for seven days, comforting and weeping with him, that extended mercy. Now, if you're a merciful person, or if you're someone who seeks to be more merciful through the power of the Holy Spirit who is in you, you know that mercy is not easy to sustain for a long time, is it? So when you're walking with someone who's in a lot of pain for a long period of time, eventually what might happen is your mercy meter kind of runs out. And as it runs out, you're less merciful toward that person who's still in their pain, which is exactly what happens with Job's friends the next time that we see him. So the first time, though, they go to him, they're really, really helpful. The next time Job's friends come back to him, they're trying to explain all of his problems. Don't do that, my friends. Don't do that. They're trying to provide the why answers to all of his problems. They're trying to fix him. They're trying to prick his conscience and say, this is why this happened to you. Let me convict you of your sin. Don't play the Holy Spirit and sell someone else's life. Okay? First, they were merciful to him. Second, as they came back, they were riding their moral high horse and they tried to explain away Job's suffering. I, I found personally that just about every time I encounter someone who's weighed down by the burdens of life, I have one of two choices. One is to kind of operate in my flesh and another one is to ask God's help to operate according to kingdom of God values that are very different than my flesh. And so when I see someone who's homeless, for example, the flesh in me might say, I wonder what he did to deserve that. I might get on my high horse of judgment over here. But the kingdom of God value in me might say, Hey, how you doing today? Tell me a bit about your story. Can I just hear a bit of your story? Can I listen to you and learn from you? I know I can't fix it, but I could offer love. Or you think of the, the homebound widow or widower who you know you should visit, and the Lord has been convicting you you should visit. My guess is, at times, there's a natural man or a natural woman in you that says, how can I make this visit as short as possible? Sometimes, because we can feel like, well, I'm giving, I'm not getting anything in return. Instead of the spiritual man, the spiritual woman in you, the kingdom of God woman in you, who would say, how can I dwell with this person and show them that no matter how old they are, no matter what condition they're in, they have value before God, they matter to God, they matter to me. Or you encounter a friend or a family member who's recently lost a mother or a child. And there's a certain tendency that we have, I think, to say something real quick and say, okay, I, I did it. I said what I needed to say. You know, I'll pray for you. They're in heaven now. Thanks be to God. I'm done with that. Like, there's, there's that temptation in me 
in the natural man. But the kingdom of God man in me wants something way better than that. Instead, the kingdom of God man in me wants to go to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, would you help me to be merciful with this, to be merciful to this person who's just lost someone they dearly love? Would you help me to be present with this person who's just lost someone that's dear to them? And then perhaps out of that, can you please tell me a little bit about your mother? Tell me why she was so special to you. Tell me about your relationship with her. Few things could be more difficult than losing your mother. I'm so sorry about your loss. Is there any way that I can pray with you or would you like me to just sit with you right now? It's two very different ways of looking at someone who's stuck in the mud. Kingdom citizens like us can do that, what I just articulated, when we are present with God, receiving his mercy, then what happens is Jesus' mercy comes into us, we recognize how merciful he's been to us, and then we naturally give more mercy to to others. Does that make sense? The more we dwell with Christ, the more we'll naturally have mercy to give to others. The first thing that we can offer is the gift of presence, and the second thing that we can offer is the gift of hope. And friends, hope is a really big piece of what Jesus is offering throughout the Beatitudes. He's telling folks who are deep in the valley that when you are impoverished, when you are mourning, when you are grieving, when you're longing for justice to come into your life, when you are persecuted, God is very near right there. You see, for those who personally know Christ, we realize that we always have an opportunity to give hope to people, don't we? Like no matter what grieving condition people might be in, we do not grieve like the rest of the world does because we have hope. And so we as Christ followers can be these hope gifters no matter where we go. Sometimes I think about Tinkerbell. Remember Tinkerbell and Peter Pan? Tinkerbell had what? This special magic pixie dust. And Tinkerbell would go around just dropping pixie dust all over the place. We have hope dust, friends. No matter where we go as followers of Christ, because of what we believe about the kingdom of God, because of what we believe about how things end, we have hope dust to just drop on people no matter where we go. And it's not like in a smiley, saccharine kind of way. It's a legitimate way that we care about people, we're present with them, but also we're able to genuinely offer hope because we know how this story ends. Love the way Dallas Willard puts it, who's written so prolifically about the kingdom. He says, you're really walking in the good news of the kingdom of God if you can go with confidence to any of the hopeless people around you and effortlessly convey assurance that they can now enter a blessed life with God. And so friends, what we do is we just kind of bathe ourselves in the mercy of God revealed in Jesus Christ. We think of him kneeling down with those children and lifting those children up to his lap and remember that those children were despised in the Roman Empire and then you realize that's the mercy of God. Yeah, you think about Jesus getting in between the stones of the Pharisees and the woman who was caught in adultery and extending mercy to, to that woman caught in adultery and you naturally become more merciful yourself. Yeah, you think about how merciful Jesus was to people like tax collectors and prostitutes such that Pharisees would look at the people that Jesus dined with, that he had dinner with, and they would scorn Jesus because he was so kind and so merciful to the people that they hated. And the more you get that in your mind, the more we think on that, 
the more we become like Jesus. We think of him offering forgiveness to all of these kinds of people, and we think of him offering forgiveness to us personally or to anyone, anyone who would admit, I need a Savior. And he does. I, I think in our more honest moments, most of us have a list of despised people. Kind of like the Romans and the Jews had their lists of despised people. They would despise Samaritans, tax collectors, prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves. They had their lists of despised people. Who's on your list of despised people? Do you believe that the kingdom of God could come to them as well? Do you believe that? That no matter what their tribe, that no matter what their baggage, that no matter what their sin, Jesus has come even for them. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has come even for me? Because I got plenty of baggage. Do you believe that Jesus has come individually for you and by name? Yes, he's come to extend his mercy to you, to you. And so we keep this in our mind all the time, Lord, how can I be a hope duster that the kingdom of God is very near to any who calls on his name? There's a wideness to his mercy. God would remind us that he extended his mercy to a deceiver named Abraham. He extended his mercy to a murderer named Moses. He extended his mercy to a philanderer named Solomon. He extended his mercy to a prostitute named Rahab. He extended his mercy to a conspirator named Paul. He extended his mercy to a traitor named Peter. He extends his mercy to you and me today as well. Mercy, my friends, is so hard to consistently live. And yet it's so attractive. And I think it's so attractive for this reason. It's the exact opposite of judgmentalism. Mercy is the exact opposite of judgmentalism. You might remember that Jesus had a brother by the name of James, and James was one of the early leaders of the Christian church, and one of the things that James had to confront within his early church in Jerusalem was judgmentalism though, that was developing in the church where people who had a lot of money were favored over those who didn't have much money. And that also certain people who committed certain sins would get the hammer and other people who committed other more preferred sins, well, those would be winked at. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, has something to say about all of that. He writes to his church in James chapter 2, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, what's the royal law? It's right here. The kingly law is this, love your neighbor as yourself. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. If you show judgmentalism, you sin. And are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. He goes on to explain in the next several verses that in the same way 
as murder is sin or adultery is sin, and those are the examples that he gives, so also favoritism, he says, is sin. And so he concludes this way, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown by the only true judge to anyone who has not been merciful. Judgment without mercy will be shown by the only true judge to anyone who has not been merciful. And then the conclusion, mercy triumphs over judgment. So good. (laughs) So good. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I, I, I love this passage so much because like, there's this objective truth about God in this and there's also this subjective experiential reality. And the objective truth that's so liberating for us in this passage is God is God. Thank you, God, you're God. <laughs> and I am not. And so I can let you be God. I need not be God over people's lives. I need not be jury or judge over people's lives because inevitably I will get it wrong. How about you? And so we let God be God over people's lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't discern right from wrong. We do discern right from wrong, and we also discern between good and bad ideas. But there's a huge difference between lovingly discerning between ideas and behaviors and unlovingly judging someone. And the key is to lovingly guide people who you are really in their lives, lovingly guide them when God rarely gives that opportunity to discern between right and wrong and mostly to discern between right and wrong with the man or woman in the mirror. Mostly to judge right there because judgment is so powerful in the wrong direction. That's the object of truth. God is God and I am not. The subject of truth is equally important for us to hold on to, and it's just this. You can judge people till the cows come home and you are unlikely to persuade them to anything. It just doesn't have much persuasive power on the person that you're judging. But mercy does. Mercy does. Like when, when we meet people with all kinds of baggage, and we're present with them, and we offer hope with them, and we say we really care about you right where you are, that has a way of triumphing over judgment, i.e., more powerful than judgment, to change the heart of people that we love. You know, the most powerful example of mercy that I've ever seen is Uh, Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity in Calcutta, India. And many years ago, my wife and I went to visit some of her extended family there in South India, where they're from, and then we got to travel up to North India, to Calcutta, and visit the Home for the Dying. That's what it's called. The Home for the Dying in Calcutta. And what happens in Calcutta, a city of 17 million people, is in the slums, when people are dying, oftentimes they get thrown out on the street. And the hope as they get thrown out on the street is that maybe someone from the missionaries of charity would come pick them up because they have no medical care for these final couple weeks of life. And oftentimes, what'll happen is people will be 
uh, placed on a rickshaw or a motorcycle and just laid on the concrete in front of that home. And the day that we went there to get a tour and learn a little bit more about their ministry, there were probably three or 400 people out in front of that building waiting to be picked up. And so the Sisters of Charity go out each day as different people die in the home and they get new people from the street and bring them inside. And during their final days or weeks of life, they clean up their vomit and they feed them and they change them and they nurse them and they pray for them and they oftentimes tell them about Jesus Christ. And indeed, there's numerous statistics that demonstrate many of the people choose to be baptized. And many times, though, they're from non-Christian backgrounds. And what they experience in this place is the unconditional love, the unconditional mercy of Christ that meets them right where they are. And most of the people that come in there are in that sorry condition because of something like leprosy or AIDS or tuberculosis or some other sexually transmitted disease. And as far as I could see, and in the books that I've read about that ministry, there's no judgment. There's mercy. And the experience of mercy triumphs over judgment as there's this simple belief that every person deserves to die with dignity. And perhaps with one final whisper from Jesus the Savior who loves them. This is the kingdom of God. This is a colony of heaven, an outpost of the kingdom here on earth. I'll just say this again the way that I started. The kingdom of God is a kingdom like no other because it welcomes those who are welcomed by no other. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would grow us more and more into merciful citizens of your great kingdom. We thank you, Jesus, that you take what is upside down and you show us what is right side up. And we acknowledge that it's very difficult and it's not exalted by the kingdoms of this world, but when we see it, it's beautiful. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live into this more and more, even this week, that we would be kingdom citizens of your mercy. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray together. Amen.